Thank you very much for coming this afternoon and uh, braving the bad weather, the rain, and everything else, which is not very inviting to go out. But um, in the past, whenever we have had events about Venezuela, or even thought about that long-suffering country, the news has been unremittingly bad. We have all become familiar with the sad story, the collapsing economy, the appallingly high murder rate, the grotesque corruption in government, and of course, the thuggish politics of Mr. Chavez and his even less impressive Mr. Maduro, who has decided to behave like a dictator to retain power. There are... perhaps hundreds of political prisoners in the entire country. And while it has gone less noticed, Venezuela has become a home for international terrorism. Meanwhile, the people of Venezuela suffer from shortages of the most basic goods, including medicine. But hope and change may finally be making a comeback. As you are all aware, there was a momentous parliamentary election in Venezuela on December 6th. The opposition parties won a tremendous landslide, gaining two-thirds supermajority. This means they will have real power. They will be able to push to reform the economy, free political prisoners, and perhaps even force a referendum on whether Mr. Maduro will stay in, in office. It's no exaggeration to say this is a true political earthquake. For the first time in more than 15 years, the ruling clique will face a strong opposition. Mr. Maduro cannot be happy about this, and his angry remarks following the election were just what one would expect. Still, the ruling socialists are tenacious. They are not going to go down without a fight. So the future is uncertain. To help us determine which way Venezuela will proceed, we have assembled an esteemed panel of experts. First, we have Gustavo Coronel, an expert on all things Venezuela, and a former board member of the country's national oil company, PDVSA. Then we have uh, Doug Farah, the president of IBI Consultants, and a senior fellow at the International Assessment and Strategy Center. Mr. Farah is an expert on the U.S. national security implications of the events in Venezuela. We're also joined by Evan Ellis, a research professor of Latin American studies at the U.S. Army War College Strategic Institutes. We are also pleased to have with us a good old friend and colleague at Hudson, Dr. Chris Sands, who will be the moderator of this event. And without any further ado, 
let's uh, give an applause or welcome to uh, the panel. <laughs> All yours. Thank you very much, Ambassador Darren Bloom. <clears throat> it is, uh, it's always a pleasure to be uh, able to work with you, and I'm looking forward to this panel, I think, as much as everyone here. For those that are watching online, if you have questions, you can send them to us via at Hudson Events. Just Twitter them to us. Um, that would be quite appreciated. And for those of you in the room, we'll have comments from the panelists, and then we'll go to Q&A, because we do want your thoughts as we proceed. We had a discussion prior to, uh, prior to the lunch, and we changed the order somewhat. And I'm going to ask Dr. Ellis if he would open. He has some slides, um, and I'll invite you to go to the podium. Then we'll have uh, Doug Farah, and we'll have Gustavo Coronel uh, wrap us up. All right? Dr. Evans. Well, good afternoon. For me, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here uh, to be able to share my, my views and, and work uh, here at the Hudson Institute. I, I want to thank uh, Ambassador Darren Bloom and, and the Hudson Institute for, for bringing me in with such an esteemed uh, panel. Uh, also, I uh, want to uh, thank uh, my institution, the U.S. Army War College Strategic Studies Institute, for um, providing the opportunity for me to be here to, to share those thoughts uh, with you and uh, to continue work uh, in this area on this uh, topic of, of all of our concern, Venezuela. Um, as was alluded to, uh, um, Venezuela is uh, and has often been a, a nation of contradictions that uh, sometimes the, uh, the worst news in, in a tropical country of plenty can be taken with a smile, and now we find that... Um, at times, uh, even the best news has its uh, gloomy underside. And so really the focus of my remarks today uh, have a lot to do with the economic challenges that remain, but I'm going to touch a little bit on the political challenges that remain for the incoming uh, opposition-dominated Venezuelan Congress. But the key point I really want to make through those comments are to express my concerns that while we may be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel of the, um, the long uh, you know, 17 years of, of, of a populist socialist experimentation in the country, uh, we still stand at the edge of an abyss in which we may see considerable chaos and suffering both within the country as well as with its neighbors um, as we advance through that process, especially in the, in the coming year. So... First, obviously, uh, there is an allusion uh, to the, the great euphoria that accompanied the tremendous uh, victory of the opposition, uh, far, far greater uh, in terms of numbers than many uh, ex expected. And yet, uh, even as the confirmation of the so-called supermajority, the, the two-thirds that allows the opposition in Congress, um, if unified, to, uh, to, to overcome uh, President uh, Maduro's uh, ability to, to veto legislation, there are a number of important ways in which already the government has indicated that it is going to seek um, constitutionally and perhaps extra-constitutionally to fight back. Obviously, uh, one of the things that's happening now with the, uh, the special uh, extraordinary session of the outgoing uh, Congress, the lame duck Congress, um, it is on the, uh, the 20, um, on the 23rd of December, it appears likely that they will uh, replace uh, 13 um, uh, outgoing Supreme Court justices with, with new uh, Chavista-oriented uh, judges, which will set the new court up in a position to be able to declare unconstitutional or, or otherwise impede some of the things that the new incoming assembly may do, um, if also 
also through some legal details, uh, the assembly is is unable to remove um, those newly appointed judges. And, and I believe uh, my um, you know my uh, esteemed colleague uh, Dr. Cronell uh, can talk also about uh, some of the issues with the potential unconstitutionality of of those. But uh, it does create a political challenge, um, as does as I alluded to before the veto power of the president. It's important to recognize that the 112 supermajority is actually a supermajority with zero margin. Um, in a country and in a region where it is possible through a combination of bribery as well as threats against uh, one's own person, one's family members, etc., to influence people to join one side or the other, um, we've already seen evidence uh, of, of activity in the last Congress where uh, where uh, members of, of the opposition were swayed over to the other side by those, those very types of pressures. So it's important to recognize that that supermajority will be lost if only one of those 112 can be induced or pressured to not vote with the opposition coalition, something that will be surprisingly easy um, for, the, uh, for the government to, to do in the coming weeks. And even if those conditions do not occur, we also have to keep in mind the considerable administrative powers of the administration and, and the many uh, different government organizations created during the last 17 years. Um, and it's entirely possible, although uh, legally uh, questionable, but entirely possible that, as has happened already, I believe, three times, that we will see um, the outgoing Congress uh, give uh, President Maduro a rule by decree powers, uh, which, uh, again, would, would impede uh, the latitude of, of the new incoming assembly. Um, and even without a supermajority, it's important to rem remember that uh, the famous power of the purse of that assembly will be limited by um, some of the off-the-books funds. We only have to talk about uh, funds such as Fonden that uh, even if the government is able to, uh, um, even if the opposition cuts off the government, there'll be considerable challenges. And of course, uh, um, the communal councils, uh, the uh, relatively um, um, you know, frightening potential to take an unelected parallel uh, structure uh, that would be imposed um, alongside of the legitimately elected uh, Constitutional Assembly. So there are a lot of challenges, and even at the end of the day, um, one arrives at the conclusion that the best case for the opposition it may be a, a fight between the executive and the legislature in which it's a question of paralyzing the government, paralyzing the economy, and seeing who takes blame for political ends. This is obviously not a situation unknown here in the United States, and oftentimes um, one recalls that the executive power, which tends to be more central, um, and oftentimes uh, it is the Congress who is more vulnerable to taking the hit if the government is paralyzed. The same rules apply in spades in Venezuela. Moving to the economic challenges, I'd like to emphasize that in many ways the government and the economy of Venezuela are fundamentally broke. And we see signs of this all over. We see, as has been alluded to, the rampant crime. Um, you know, the actual figures are far and above the official uh, 69 per 100,000, uh, especially places like Caracas is one of the most violent cities in the region. Uh, the uh, law enforcement structures are completely broken down. Transparency International ranks uh, Venezuela one of the most corrupt countries in the world. Um, the situation has gone beyond the collaboration of state agents with narco-trafficking, as we find elsewhere in the region, to the point which, uh, as was seen with the, uh, the indictment uh, recently published after the election uh, in, in, in the U.S. of the head of the National Guard, Nestor Rivero, um, that uh, you have um, basically Venezuela having become a narco-state with involvement at the highest level. Illusions, uh, of course, uh, Diostado Cabello, the head of the outgoing assembly, um, being part of the, the famed uh, Cartel of the Sons, etc. 
Um, in addition, of course, uh, other evidence, uh, we, the uh, evidence we see of what's really going on behind the scenes, which is really a broken economy. And so at the surface, you see things like rampant inflation, which is what happens when you print a lot of money without any actual production behind it, um, estimated to be over 200% for, for the coming year. Uh, obviously, the currency controls, which uh, according to the, uh, the unofficial uh, Dollar Today uh, website, um, was at least at the end of last week uh, 857 uh, strong bolivares per, per dollar. Uh, as well as uh, rampant other problems, the smuggling of gasoline, but also the smuggling of, of goods. Uh, it's estimated, actually, that in one way or another, through um, speculation or for other purposes, something like 40% of the food that is sold through subsidized stores that is not actually wasted or otherwise lost in a broken supply chain uh, actually ends up being stolen. And obviously, I talked about the, the, the currency speculations as well. And so across the board, we see at the very surface uh, signs that the opposition is coming in with an economy that is not only um, dysfunctional, but is fundamentally um, you know, on, its, on, on its back and, and needs severe and immediate help. Um, as an indication of that, um, one of the artifacts is also an upcoming currency crisis. The problem, um, and uh, I would credit uh, Russ Dallin, who, who follows these issues very, very closely, uh, the estimate that uh, um, something like $14.5 billion in remaining reserves, but the situation uh, gets worse because as the government is running out of money, it also has a challenge that um, it's a, it relies fundamentally on that money because the economy domestically produces almost nothing. Um, it needs to buy those goods and import those goods. So without money, you have the other side of the coin, which is that um, you have long lines, you have empty store shelves. You almost need a picture to bring it, to bring it home to bear. And I'll go into this in just a minute, but um, in a sense, there are multiple reasons why the economy is, is broken and just cannot, largely because of government policies, produce the things that their own people need to eat, although uh, you know, 20 years ago, that was a very different situation. A few more words on the currency situation. Again, um, the reserve's going down, but it's actually worse than even the reserve numbers because, as, again, Russ Dallin estimates, um, a substantial amount of those reserves are actually held in gold, which, while somewhat liquid, are not, is not as liquid as you might think. Another portion is actually not physical reserves at all, but options to borrow money from the International Monetary Fund, of which Venezuela has already been doing. Um, at the same time, we see that this coming year, Venezuela has a somewhat higher than normal uh, series of, of different debt repayment obligations coming in, about $10.5 billion, according to, uh, um, to, to, to estimates, which, again, will put the government in a very difficult situation, the opposition-dominated government now, uh, that uh, um, you know, does it pay to feed the Venezuelan people or does it pay to avoid defaulting on its debts? And that becomes a, a politically and economically very painful decision. Um, and a quick point on the oftentimes talked about a Chinese funds. While China will play a very, very important role, I believe, um, in determining what happens with the country in the future, uh, I, I, it's important to recognize that of the over $53 billion that has been loaned by, the, by China to keep um, the Chavez and now Maduro regime alive, um, only about a third of that money, uh, a little over $20 billion, is, is still outstanding. Most of those loans are short-term loans uh, tied to repayment by oil sales. And so um, the Chinese have actually done a very effective job, probably better than some of the other lenders, in managing the risk in the country. So it's not about um, all of this money being owed to China. Um, most of the money is actually owed to Western creditors. Um, a few points on what's behind, then, those oil, re oil revenue problems. Uh, as I alluded to before, about 96% of the, um, the, the money coming in for, for, buying oil, for, for buying goods for the country come from the production of oil. 
The fundamental problem on the one side is that the price that Venezuela gets for its oil, generally about $8 a barrel lower than the market prices already, um, is, is, is falling. Um, we're looking at uh, something around $30 a barrel oil, uh, which is, as you can see from this graph, uh, you know, approximately a, a third of what it was uh, just, uh, just two years ago. Um, at the same time, um, Venezuela has not, despite a certain amount of investment, been able to bring up its oil production. Although the government figures is about, according to Petavesa, about 2.8 um, million barrels per day. Uh, OPEC, as well as the U.S. Energy um, Industries Association, estimates a little under uh, 2.5. And that's been flat for, for a number of, of years, despite uh, a great deal of heavy oil. Now, what's happening to further compound that situation is that you have increasing costs of production. So you have certain uh, investments that have not been made, things such as upgraders, which without getting into the technical details are expensive and they're necessary um, if you want to basically process uh, relatively dirty high sulfur um, crude into the types of things that you can sell on the market. Um, now, in the absence of those upgraders, what Venezuela has had to do is, is actually import basically lighter crude to blend with its heavier crude so that it has something that is marketable. But when you basically have to import oil to mix to sell oil at a lower price, um, that is a very, very expensive way. Um, you, you lose a lot of money that you would otherwise get for, for your oil. Um, on top of that, you have all kinds of problems that really reflect a decaying petroleum infrastructure. You had the Amway refinery uh, just a while ago, an enormous explosion, um, um, you know, a large number of people killed. Um, but it doesn't just stop there. There are daily things that happen with respect to production shutdowns and things, um, which basically are costs and lost production um, because of this neglect of infrastructure. And that's getting worse by the day. That's something the opposition is going to inherit. Um, on the other hand, uh, there are the revenue that it does get is lost in a lot of different areas. So um, it's lost to the, the social program, the so-called misiones. It's lost uh, to some degree to um, to, uh, to uh, the payments to Alba. It's lost to payments to Petrocaribe, which basically allows um, Venezuela, the recipients in, in the Caribbean, uh, to uh, to pay only about half um, of, of what the cost of the oil is and finance the remaining half over a period of about 20 years. Uh, a lot that goes to domestic gasoline subsidies, uh, something that is be seen as, as a right within, within Venezuela. Uh, you can fill up your, your tank for about a dollar. Actually, that's at the official exchange rate. It, it's about uh, um, a hundredth of that if you calculate it at the unofficial exchange rate. But the bottom line is that, um, that this farther chips away at the money that is being produced by the oil revenues. Um, and at the end of the day, you find that the flip side is that um, these are why Venezuela is not, and it's going to be very hard to get the money that it needs to buy goods to feed its people. Now, on the other hand, you find that it itself um, has problems in producing its own goods. Um, multiple disincentives for production. Uh, manufacturing, it's estimated in just the third quarter, is down 47% from what it was just a year ago. Um, they have to do with disincentives to production, uh, things like price controls, um, things like difficulty in getting access to, to capital, the lack of physical security for companies, uh, the difficulty in getting the, the types of, of, of imports that you need to actually produce things. Um, there was actually one estimate uh, by, the, um, by one of the uh, a key producers association that something like 30 tons of, of wheat was stuck in Puerto Cabello. Um, and without those 30 tons of wheat, which is largely a supply chain issue, um, it's uh, very difficult to bake the bread that uh, people in Venezuela need. To, to, to eat. Um, beyond that, you have uh, government organizations like Corpovex, which are delaying payments because they're, they're cash short, as we've already seen. Um, but in the course of delaying payments, that means that uh, things that need to get imported to make the economy run don't get imported. 
you have factories, even the Chinese, who tend to be relatively favored, um, have not been able to get the capital equipment that they need to actually open some of the promised factories, the bus factory, um, the, um, the, the, the white goods factory, the, the, the car factory. And so um, they, they have built these factories, but they, tend, but they continue to import products from China because they couldn't get the factories up and running. Um, and then you have some things where just a lot of money has been spent to build something that has ended up being, uh, you know, signs and rusty buildings in a field. Um, so the Serlaka facility in the middle of the country, for example, for, for producing aluminum, uh, you know, is, is a key example of that um, where, you know, it's not clear whether the money has been stolen or otherwise, but at the end of the day, the money has been spent and there's nothing there to, to generate that production. And many other issues. Obviously, the closure of the Colombian border, Colombia being a key supplier of a number of, of goods for Venezuela, um, you know, that has been, uh, that has been you know, harmful to the economy. And then, um, you know, last, uh, you know, to, 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 uh, to close this here, uh, a few uncertainties as we go forward. Uh, one is the question of how this thing that I alluded to before, the uh, fight between the presidency and, and the Supreme Court on, on the one side versus the new Congress, how that will play out. The problem is that you can't bring together uh, you know, constitutional scholars to figure out you know, who has what right in what situation because the rules of the game are basically interpreted on the fly, um, especially by the government. And so in many ways, it's, it's a very ambiguous playing field in which this will play out. Um, it's also interesting, some of the key selections, whether it will be, uh, whether it will be uh, Henry Ramos Alup or whether it will be other people, for example, of, of uh, Premier Justicia or, or others who, who will be chosen to lead. And that will, that will have a lot to do with the tone that the opposition takes um, in dealing with the new government. Um, also, as I alluded to before, whether the Chavistas will be able to divide or co-opt members of the coalition. Um, and, and this whole issue of blame. Again, as we've seen in the United States with uh, what happened between the president and Congress here, um, as conditions deteriorate in Venezuela, will Maduro succeed in focusing popular dissent on, um, on, on the opposition and thus in part save himself? Um, how will this flood of criminal indictments that's coming against people, as, as I alluded to before, people, um, you know, people like Reptile, uh, impact things? And at the same time, um, what role will other potential helpers, potential sources of funding, um, for example, will the, will the PRC wait to see how, how this shakes out before deciding whether to extend new good money after bad? Um, and it certainly appears that uh, Maduro is, is, not, uh, is not going to be actively looking for money from places like the IMF, at least in the, in the near term. And then finally, so a lot has been said interpreting the Venezuela election in the context of other things in the region. Uh, for example, the victory of Macri in Argentina, um, the decision of Rafael Correa in Ecuador not to seek a, a fourth term for, for in, in office, um, the current political and economic crisis, which may result in the impeachment of a President Dilma in, in Brazil, uh, et cetera, the normalization of Cuba relations. A lot of people have talked about the rollback of, of the so-called pink tide of, of you know, socialist populism in, in, in Latin America. Um, but the, so the point that I want to close on is this idea that in many ways what we're seeing across the region, as we saw generations before, is that some of the internal economic contradictions in terms of, of bureaucracy, uh, in terms of, of, of the control over uh, the resources of, of the people by people with particularistic interest, we're seeing now that across the region um, there's a certain collapse of populist socialist experiments under the weight of their own contradictions. And yet, um, this is a window that will be, as we've already seen in Venezuela, a fleeting window, as well as a window that will be difficult for those who have other views to exploit. Um, but I would say is that for the United States and for policymakers in Washington, um, what should be recognized is that it is an opportunity but a fragile one, that the United States has a vested interest in helping to ensure that democracy and regimes that respect rule of law and human rights succeed in Venezuela as elsewhere in the region. Because 
those choices and, and helping the region to see that that is indeed a path to prosperity and human dignity um, will shape a lot the type of region and the type of security that we in the United States have um, in the years to come um, living uh, with our neighbors. Thank you very much for your time, and uh, I pass, the, pass it to our distinguished colleagues. Thank you very much, Dr. Ellis. Um, can we turn to you, Doug? And you can speak from there or the podium, whichever is more comfortable. I don't have PowerPoint, so I'll stand here to be better heard, perhaps. Well, first I'd like to thank Ambassador uh, Jaime for having me here and for the Hudson Institute and for the chance to, to talk with you briefly. I've been asked to address the issue of terrorism in Venezuela in light of the, of the elections, and I think my... First initial conceptualization of this, are, there are two things I want to I want to sort of focus on. One is the a concept I've been writing a lot about recently, which is the concept of a criminalized state. And I think that it, by criminalized state, I don't mean corrupted states or states that have specific nodes of of corruption that benefit certain uh, criminal activities or certain terrorist activities. I'm talking about states where the criminal enterprise is directed from the seat of government, and I think that Venezuela has been sort of the primary case study in that over the last several years, along with the other Bolivarian nations that it has brought with it, including Ecuador, Bolivia, Nicaragua, and I would argue probably unfortunately now El Salvador. So I think that you have to, if, you, if you buy into the idea that there's something fundamentally different about a state that acts and reaches out to terrorist and transnational organized crime groups as a matter of state policy and as an instrument of state policy, it's fundamentally different from what you see in places uh, like Mexico, Guatemala, elsewhere, where you have corrupted states, hollowed out states, but not a state participation directly in front on orders from uh, going forward uh, with, these, with these enterprises. So I think if you sort of keep that in one side of your head. And the other thing I'd like to say is that I think that the elections, because they deal with the legislative body and the bulk of what we're talking about in terms of terrorist associations and uh, criminal associations are largely handled by the security apparatus, I would argue that Venezuela will change for the better, but not because of the change in the legislative elections, but because of the own internal contradictions that uh, Dr. Ellis was talking about. I think the key, one of the key things that I've been looking at and in, in, in others is what is, how, what is the relationship, because one of the key relationships that uh, President Chavez had built and then Maduro tried to keep going was the relationship with Iran and obviously in, with, with Hezbollah. And what I, what, we've, what I and others have noticed is that there's a significant drop in Iranian presence and interest. And I think this is largely not because of a disagreement with Maduro or because the government wants to do anything about it. Simply, the Iranians don't like chaos any better than anyone else does. And if you, if you have alternatives, if you're being reintegrated into the international structure as Iran is trying to do through the agreement with the United States and the, and the other countries to lift the sanctions and move forward, there's very little to be gained by being, by relying heavily on a country that's going down the toilet, right? That just doesn't make it's not a lot of economics uh, or strategic sense when you have when you have other alternatives uh, available to you. The other big factor in what Venezuela has done through the years is the support for the FARC in Colombia, and I think that's also as you look at the, across the panorama, that's also changing very very dramatically because you have the FARC trying to come into a uh, a peace process uh, for its uh, multiple, I would say, uh, fragile points that, that could uh, easily lead to 
I would say, negative consequences down the road. Uh, I think there clearly will be a peace agreement signed there. And so what does that mean for Venezuela's role, which has been the primary uh, support of, of the FARC through the last uh, 10 years at least and probably significantly before that? And I think, again, the FARC being a rational actor and having alternatives, which we can talk about, which don't go directly to Venezuela, is not that interested in not relying that strongly on Venezuela again, not because of any ideological... Uh, decoupling from from the Bolivarian model simply because it's not the best place to be. And, and again, people don't like to be in situations of chaos. And when the FARC has allies in Nicaragua, El Salvador, and Ecuador particularly that are willing to help them move their money out of the out of the jungle into a quasi-legitimate structure and create a political structure going forward, Venezuela is no longer the, the ideal vehicle for that. They probably wish they were and they, and they wish they could, but I think that they're, they're simply not. So I think in, in that sense, you're going to see a little better, uh, a little less FARC involvement in Venezuela for the reasons uh, external to the, to the electoral process. And I think that one of, as is, is Dr. Ellis outlined uh, so eloquently, you see the enormous problems that the opposition is going to be facing in the Congress simply on dealing with economic disaster and catastrophe that's rolling down on them. And they simply won't have the time, I would, I, would, I would think, or the bandwidth to be able to burrow in simultaneously on looking at the intelligence apparatuses and their multiple ties to different terrorist organizations. It's simply not something that will be able to get on their agenda. And I would argue probably in this case rightly so because their immediate survival will depend on their being able to deal with the economics and not their short-term survival won't depend on their dealing with uprooting the the clandestine structures that the Chavez government has allowed to to take root there. But I would say this, and I think that that, but that is the key point, and you see it if you look at the historical trends or what has happened elsewhere, particularly in Central America, the key factor for the opposition, if they gain traction and if they're able to go forward, will be ultimately to uproot the clandestine structures because we've seen in Nicaragua, El Salvador, elsewhere, if those structures survive, if they're not dealt with going forward, they, they never go away. And what you saw, what you've seen in, in Nicaragua, as the Sandinistas left power the first time in 1990, what did they do? They granted citizenship to 900 terrorists. They kept massive amounts of weapons and, uh, and other things belonging to the FMLN and themselves and carried and, and maintained an entire structure <coughs> that was never held accountable by the Chamorro government because they just simply didn't have the power to do that. And what do you see happening in El Salvador? And I would argue that this, goes, this does go directly to Venezuela because it ties directly to their oil company, PDVSA. In El Salvador, you see the creation of a massive economic engine supposedly built on Petrocaribe and this relationship with, uh, with uh, PDVSA where they give oil and they're supposed to be paid back, etc. Alba Petróleos in Salvador started with $1 million in 2007. Oil prices have gone down. Venezuelan oil has simply stopped arriving because they don't have it to put out there. And if they did have it, the price would be minimal. And every year, all the petroleum revenues grow by about 50%. So in, they started with $1 million in 2007. Their earnings in 2014 were $1 billion, built on oil that doesn't exist and prices that are, that are minimal. What does that tell me? It tells me that there's 
this is an irrational economic model that is functioning entirely on something else, and I would argue that a great deal of that money comes from the FARC and from the Venezuelan uh, oligarchs that are taking their money out now in great, uh, very rapidly. And I think that when Dr. Ellis talked about the indictments coming down and what the impact is going forward with these groups, I think the main factor is fear. This driving the money that these guys have take, kept in Venezuela, the little they had, uh, moving it out. So you have an infrastructure problem. What, what we don't know what Hezbollah has established in Venezuela going forward. We do know that for even in this fragile condition, Venezuela offers multiple things that are beneficial to both terrorists and criminal organizations. And the primary thing that we've seen over the region in the last multiple years is the ability to issue passports. One of the things that uh, they can do even in economic chaos and disaster is issue passports to people who need passports and may not be able to travel on transports from their own country, particularly Iran, Hezbollah, and, and other groups. Um, the other thing they offer, and this is the thing I think that will, with, down the road, the opposition and whoever comes in will, will have to pay a great deal of attention to, is the financial infrastructure. Because as chaotic as it is, we know from the indictments and the, the rulings that were handed down by the U.S. Treasury Department on the Banca Privada de Andorra that in one two-year period, PDVSA laundered $2 billion through Banca uh, Privada de Andorra. And that's one little window shot of one banking structure that, that, is, that is out there. So we know that this infrastructure exists and we know it moves enormous amounts of money. You also, Dr. Ellis mentioned Fonden. Fonden owns 49.9% of a major Russian bank consortium. The Russian bank consortium is formed entirely of sanctioned Russian banks, and billions of dollars disappear into Fonden to the Russian banks, and it's a, it's a major hole in which we have very little insight into, but one of the infrastructure apparatuses that remains uh, intact, even as Venezuela's economic uh, condition uh, goes, goes down. And I think if you, if, so if you look at what happened in Nicaragua and El Salvador, and I think that, and I know that these, the Salvadoran leadership of some of the FMLN leaders and some of the Sandinistas are spending a great deal of time with the FARC in Havana in the negotiating process. But what they're, what they're look, if you look at what they've done, what they did in their post wars, you had specific groups in all of these revolutionary communities that didn't demobilize and didn't go into the peace process. I would argue that in each of these cases, the vast majority did. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a majority at all. I think it's probably more in the neighborhood of 5 or 10% that didn't. But what did they do? What did the Sandinistas manage to do when they left power in 1990? And when the Buson de Santa Rosa, the major arsenal that blew up in 1992, if any of you remember back that far, there was a major FMLN uh, stockpile of weapons and uh, blank passports and uh, surface-to-air missiles, etc., that they never declared in the, in the peace process, blew up in Managua in uh, 1993, and it was rather fascinating because it showed the person who owned the Busson, who was sitting on top of the Busson, was an ETA terrorist who was wanted in Spain. He had the, and he'd been granted uh, Nicaraguan citizenship. And as they dug back further, who else had gotten Nicaraguan uh, citizenship but the, the person, the trigger man who killed uh, Italian Prime Minister Aldo Moro, a whole series of Red Brigade operatives, a whole series of other internationally wanted terrorists. And I think that I'm referencing this because I think this is what will remain in Venezuela going forward. And this is, will be the challenge as one, I, one assumes, and I think that one can assume that this election was the beginning of a long process of erosion of Maduro. I think that uh, Dr. Ellis is right that there probably is, particularly economically, a relatively small window, but I also think 
that undoubtedly the pink tide, as people call it, the Bolivarian Revolution, is facing uh, a whole series of obstacles. And I think that the, you can't underestimate the benefit of having Macri arrest, uh, elected in, in Argentina because for the first time you'll have a major South American country that's willing to challenge the democratic credentials of Venezuela going forward, something that we haven't seen in, uh, in many, many years. And I think that will probably embolden other countries to to begin to do the same thing. And as, as Argentina moves away, it also takes away one of the other key avenues that terrorists were beginning to use, particularly our, uh, the Iranian connection there. And so I think that it's, there, are, there are signs of, uh, of weakness. There are fissures there. But I think that underneath all of this, as you see for, and as I say in other countries that last for 20, 30 years, an infrastructure that is encrusted in these apparatuses that takes incredible political will and discipline to get at and to remove. And I think that, uh, I think in Venezuela we're a long way from being at the point where the opposition can even begin to think about doing that. So I think that, that the, the role Venezuela plays will be, will be different. I think a great deal will depend also on the nature of the FARC uh, actual, actually coming into the process, what the final agreement looks like, what the FARC keeps as their clandestine structures, what they rely on for, for Venezuela, the political cover, uh, the passport situation, and all those things will be, they're in flux right now. And I think the other major player in all this, of course, is Cuba. Cuba has run the uh, Venezuelan intelligence structure for a long time and is deeply encrusted in that structure. Uh, as Cuba moves toward the United States, there's some talk that they now view Venezuela with less and less oil to actually give them and their main benefits not accruing to them any longer, may be willing to cut some of, the, of their Venezuelan friends loose in exchange for other uh, benefits that could come from relations with the United States. Uh, the, the folks in, uh, in Venezuela talk a lot about the Cubans saying that uh, if the Americans were to catch Diosdado Cabello out of and about, there would be no problem from the Cubans because they don't like him. And Maduro's been their guy, and Diosdado has never liked the Cubans. So I think there are, there are sort of games within games there that will be going forward that will help define what the, what the actual situation of terrorism is. But as I said, I think the main change is in the internal decomposition of Venezuela itself, not in what the electoral process will bring immediately, although I do think over time that electoral process will build on itself. The, the Chavista revolution will weaken further, and, over, and if the opposition is able to focus on uprooting the network that was built, I think, uh, I think Venezuela will have a way forward. And if they don't, they run a real risk of never being able to rid themselves of those clandestine structures that have become so embedded there. Thank you. Thank you very much, Doug Ferrer. Now we turn to Gustavo Coronel. Thank you. Good job. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Jaime. Glad to be back here at the Hudson Institute. I just uh, came back from Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, talking where I talked to my alma mater. I graduated there many, many, many years ago. And I was telling them that Venezuela had three main characteristics, traditionally. One was uh, it had a lot of oil. It had beautiful women and very good baseball players. And I told them that even today, these three characteristics are valid. We have a lot of oil. We st still have uh, many beautiful women. 
of course, helped along by our excellent uh, plastic surgeons. And we have very good baseball players. Uh, Miguel Cabrera just won the batting title again in the major leagues. We, we have about 115 Venezuelan players in the major leagues uh, nowadays. Unfortunately, we also have two new characteristics. Uh, Venezuela uh, has uh, a main uh, role in drug distribution in Latin America, and it's also a very prominent agent in money laundering. And these two, these two businesses are run by the government, unfortunately. So things have changed, and these last uh, two characteristics explain why uh, 6th of December the government lost in such a dramatic uh, fashion. Uh, what happened on the 6th of December uh, can be read as a national plebiscite, even more so than as a purely legislative uh, election. Uh, the opposition took uh, uh, two-thirds of the seats in the National Assembly. Uh, that's a supermajority. And even without a supermajority, with uh, such a, an ample majority, it would have a, an enormous power, uh, both uh, constitutionally and uh, through popular mandate. The new uh, National Assembly will have an enormous power to do things, to try to put uh, things right in Venezuela. For example, uh, it could revoke the current uh, members of the National Electoral Council, which are there because they are uh, in an illegal fashion. They, they were named provisionally. They were not named according to the procedures in the Venezuelan constitution. They could also change some of the uh, members of the moral, uh, the so-called moral power, Poder Ciudadano, and they could even uh, try to revoke uh, some of the uh, uh, current members of the uh, uh, Supreme Tribunal of Justice. In particular, if the new, uh, if, if the old assembly names new uh, magistrates, as uh, apparently they are going to do, they could be revoked by the new National Assembly. But the assembly can also uh, reform laws, in special, for example, the organic law of the popular power, uh, through this law, Diosdado Cabello, the, the current uh, president of the National Assembly, has structured a parallel National Assembly. They, he calls it uh, the Popular Council, and is now in functions. Of course, it has no legislative uh, authority of any kind, but it has a psychological impact on the population. It's confusing to have uh, a parallel uh, assembly in, in, in function nowadays. The, uh, the National Assembly can also interpolate, do you say interpolate? Interpolation or can question the, the ministers and they can censor ministers and expel them from their jobs. They, could, they have to approve the national budget. They also have to approve any loans to Venezuela from now on. Uh, that is to say, from uh, January 5th onwards, uh, which is the day they uh, come into function. And they can investigate uh, corruption, money laundering, drug trafficking, uh, 
As you know, uh, lately we have seen some examples of uh, drug trafficking involving uh, relatives of uh, President Maduro and his wife. Uh, today, actually, these two young people are being uh, presented to the judge in New York. And uh, anecdotally, Squire Patton Box, uh, which is a, law a lawyer firm in here in, in Washington, uh, was defending one of the young men and withdrew uh, from that role uh, two, two days ago. Uh, of course, uh, it was a very stupid thing for Patton Box to be related to, to this young man because uh, the Venezuelan government is one of the best, best clients of Patton Box. So the, the link between the young man, the government of Venezuela, and Patton Box was too evident. And uh, well, that's why they, they withdrew in their, in their role. Actually, uh, then uh, the new legislators uh, have already published a list of things that they want to do first of all. They have established some priorities, uh, and they, they, they say that they want to go into emergency measures concerning the food and medicine supply in Venezuela, which is very critical. Uh, they, they want to do something immediately about that. Uh, they want to reverse some of the, or many of the expropriations that took place during Chavez's uh, tenure. Uh, as you know, Dozens of Venezuelan companies were illegally, uh, well, they actually confiscated by, by the Venezuelan government, and uh, they should be now reversed. Uh, they also want to go into reforming the state monopolies, uh, monopolies such as the electricity and the waterworks in Venezuela, which are really in very bad shape. They want to do something about the financial crisis. As uh, Evan says, uh, Venezuela is practically bankrupt, and they want to uh, attract uh, some uh, uh, emergency funds to survive financially next year, which is going to be very difficult, very difficult for Venezuela. Uh, they want to do something uh, about uh, the political prisoners. In fact, they are already drafting a, uh, a decree of uh, <coughs> general amnesty, uh, which is uh, better as a decree than as a law. Uh, even even uh, by trying to do things, they will run into legal conflicts uh, among themselves. Some of the lawyers of the opposition do not know exactly whether a law or a decree will be the best way to go about uh, putting our political prisoners uh, out of uh, prison. Now, what would be the impact in the short term of this change in, in the political landscape of, of Venezuela? Uh, to begin with, we have to recognize that uh, Nicolás Maduro is uh, essentially isolated internationally. Even the allies of Maduro, uh, such as Cuba, Russia, China, Brazil uh, are totally uh, in disagreement with him uh, about rejecting the results of this uh, election. Uh, the foreign ministries of uh, China and Russia have gone publicly on record to say that they hope uh, that Venezuela will stay politically stable and we will continue to grow. 
peacefully and so on. So they, 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 they have abandoned Maduro. Uh, Cuba hasn't said very much. Uh, and of course, uh, other countries uh, with, uh, of the ALBA group, which are the ones which are very loyal to Maduro, are taking uh, a, a very moderate attitude. So essentially, Maduro is internationally isolated. Then uh, the impact on the short term will probably be more psychological than substantial or material, uh, because uh, what they want to do in the national, in the new national assembly, is to to give the the, the Venezuelan public and the international uh, observers the 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 conviction that Venezuela is getting uh, now is getting democratic, that uh, is going to democratize. Uh, the political processes in in Venezuela. They will probably go into asking the OAS, the Organization of American States, more uh, a more aggressive posture regarding uh, sanctioning uh, the violations to democracy from the Venezuelan uh, government. And they will probably also go into a domestic investigation of drug trafficking. Uh, so far, the only, the only government doing investigation of the drug trafficking in Venezuela has been the U.S. government uh, through the Department of Justice. They have uh, half a dozen of, of top officers already uh, fingered as uh, collaborators of, of the uh, FARC and, and of, traffic, uh, uh, of the traffic, uh, drug trafficking. And uh, they now, of course, have uh, named Mr. Reverol, Nestor Reverol, who is uh, the head of the National Guard in Venezuela, as the, uh, as the newest uh, uh, as, as associate, associate of uh, drug trafficking in, in Venezuela. So the Department of Justice in the U.S. is moving very well along those lines, but Venezuela now can take the initiative in doing their own investigations. In the medium term, uh, they can do several important things. Uh, first of all, they will have to consider very seriously whether they should cut the supply of oil to Cuba and to Petrocaribe. Venezuela is sending uh, Cuba close to 100,000 barrels of oil per day, and the amount of uh, wealth transference from Venezuela to Cuba during all these years of, of Chavez uh, uh, presidency uh, have been of, of the nature of uh, close to $50 billion uh, in all this time. So that's an enormous amount of money going from Venezuela to, to the Castro uh, government. They, they should consider cutting that uh, because it's, it's going, uh, it's, uh, it's very heavy a load to be carried by, by a country which is financially not in good shape. They have to stop, uh, as Mauricio Macri did just uh, recently in Argentina, they should stop uh, foreign exchange controls, uh, which has uh, been very harmful to the country. Uh, they should promote private investment coming into Venezuela, and that's, that's going to be a very, very difficult task because uh, the instability, the, the political instability in Venezuela is so great that I don't believe uh, many companies will want to, to go into Venezuela at this very moment. They might have to intervene 
Petróleos de Venezuela, eh, Petróleos de Venezuela is a company which is uh, financially and operationally uh, in ruins and uh, with a high level degree of uh, corruption among management. In fact, uh, many of the money launderers in, in, uh, in Venezuela, the ones that have put uh, enormous amounts of money in, of money in Andorra and, and Spain uh, are the, uh, top managers of Petróleos de Venezuela. In, in special, uh, Mr. Rafael Ramirez, who is now the Venezuelan representative in the United Nations. So they can do all of these things, but it might take uh, uh, six to eight months before they can really start to, to act. Now, what about the outlook uh, for, for the new National Assembly and for, for the new role of the opposition in Venezuela? Uh, we, we simply have two, two scenarios. One would be rectification by the current government and uh, invitation of the government to the opposition to sit around a table and to dialogue uh, rationally and try to work uh, together in order to, to come out of this huge crisis. Uh, and the second one is confrontation. And uh, conf the confrontation scenario is already with us. I mean, uh, there is no point in assigning probabilities to the first scenario because they, the, the current government of Venezuela has already said that uh, they are going to confront uh, the, the new situation. In fact, uh, they have already structured this parallel National Assembly, and they are naming 13 new magistrates of the Tribunal Supreme, uh, Supreme Tribunal of Justice. Uh, they are naming these people because in that fashion, the new assembly might not be able to remove them. Uh, although if they do this as they want to do it with a simple majority, which is all they have at this very moment, uh, that would be unconstitutional. So the new assembly might then go and simply revoke the new magistrates of the Supreme Tribunal of Justice. But the two, the two actions reflect uh, the intentions of the current government to simply reject uh, the validity of the new National Assembly. In fact, uh, they, they are putting themselves uh, uh, on, on, a, on, on the side, of, on, on one side of the law. They, they, they are placing themselves above the law by, uh, by rejecting the, the popular uh, will of uh, the, the will of the people. Now, this confrontation scenario, uh, in my opinion, only has one outcome, uh, the early ousting of uh, President Maduro. Uh, he, he will not finish his, uh, his normal term, which would end in 2019. Now, by, by confronting the, the new political mood and climate in Venezuela, he will be opposing not only the will of the people, but apparently also the decision of the armed forces, which are the final arbiter in Venezuela, uh, the decision of, of the army to, to uh, support a democratic solution for, for the country. So uh, this is where we are today. And, uh, and of course, I'll, I'll be very happy to, uh, to, to try to answer any questions uh, that you, you might have. Thank you.
All right, ladies and gentlemen, we'd like to get your questions and get you involved in this discussion. But before we do, I'd like to turn back to the panel in the order that you spoke, just to see if you have any quick thoughts on each other's comments and, and maybe if there's anything that you want to throw in. Uh, Dr. Ellis, sort of looking at the scenarios from Gustavo Cornell and some of the additional material on terror links from uh, Doug Farrell. What do you think? Absolutely, and I'll go in the, the order uh, spoken. I, I think uh, Doug makes some, some excellent points about uh, I, I, it's perhaps one of the great ironies that um, some of the, uh, the things that has made Venezuela a, a, a bad case for, for regular business also makes it a, a bad case for, for illicit business. And so I, I think mm -hmm. he's very right that uh, some of those, those flows out of Venezuela, both illicit flows and, and illicit flows, uh, will, will impact the situation. And uh, I, was, um, I, I was moved. This is, it's in, in the many years that I've had the, the pleasure of, of knowing uh, Dr. Coronel, this is uh, probably the, the most optimistic that, I, that, that, that I've seen him. And I think we're, we're looking at two sides of, <laughs> uh, of the same coin. And I think uh, with respect to his excellent analysis and, and some of the things I put forth, um, to me it really comes down to how will this uh, fight play out, again, between the Supreme Court and, and the president on one side and the new assembly. And that will have a lot to do with who is selected to lead the assembly, what tone, how the government responds. Um, and, and, and it's a game that is wide open. And it's a game you can't predict from looking at the rules because the, the rules are oftentimes made on the fly by the government team. And either you know, the, you know, the degree to which those rules are stretched, that stretching is either accepted or not, ex not accepted, as we've seen in the past. And so I think, it's a, um, I think things are going to get worse before they get better. Um, and the outcome is, is highly unpredictable. But I would, I would concur that this is a critical opportunity for the United States to get out ahead of this game and, and, and help show that the path of democracy, the path of rule of law, um, and the, um, the, the path of, of institutional strength uh, is, is a legitimate path to bring prosperity and development both to Venezuela and in, in the region. I think what we do here as a government will be critical to how the region uh, continues to develop in the coming years. Doug? I think what was striking in listening to, to Evan and Gustavo is the the amount, the levers of power that the Maduro government still has to make things go horribly awry. I think that it's easy to get caught up in the euphoria, and I think it's clearly a very important uh, event when you have a uh, sea change elections like this. But I think it's, it's also easy to forget that the deck is still very, very heavily stacked against the the, the incoming group. So I think that, uh, I think that that's important to, to keep in mind. And I would agree with what, what Evan just said on the U.S. shaping events, but I think it's really incredibly important for what the United States can do in helping Latin Americans shape the events more than the United States being out in front uh, on, in, in a very public way. I think if the more we can work with Maduro, with Bachelet, with a few of the other folks that prove that might be more or less willing to finally confront the fact that they have a far less than democratic government in Venezuela and spilling over, obviously, I think, into Ecuador, Bolivia, Nicaragua, um, you, if the more that you can generate the Latin American discussion of this, the better it will be for the Venezuelan internal opposition for, going forward. Because the one thing that Chavez and Maduro have always hated is when other Latin Americans, especially that come out of the left, like Mujica and others, have criticized them. That's the one thing they can't take because they can't say it's the empire striking them. So I think that will be very important going forward. Yeah, I, I was going to add uh, that uh, uh, there is a new actor uh, nowadays that w did not exist uh, really before in the past elections. Now, uh, this, this new actor is the, the outside world. Uh, the outside world is now very attentive uh, to what is going on in, in Venezuela. 
and the pressure on, on the Venezuelan government is bigger than, than any, at any other time in the past. Uh, we have the results of Argentina. Uh, we have the fact that Correa might not be seeking a new term. Uh, he said uh, something like no mass, uh, the same way Duran said, uh, I mean, uh, Mano de Piedra said uh, when he fought uh, Duran. Uh, Raul Castro uh, will abandon power in 2017. So the, 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 there seems to be a wave of uh, political wave trending uh, to the center and, and to the right in, in Latin America. And, uh, and then, of course, we have the more aggressive behavior of uh, uh, Luis Almagro in the OAS, which is a way, way too dif different from, from the very uh, insipid uh, predecessor. So we, we have now the eyes of Latin America and even the European Union on Venezuela, and this is going to make uh, Maduro's life much more difficult. Absolutely. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have an audience online, and so as a result, if you have a question, raise your hand. A young lady from the back will come to you with a microphone so we can get your comments on the, on the video. And just tell us your name and uh, your affiliation of choice. Uh, some of you I know have a couple. Um, there's a gentleman here, and then we'll have a gentleman there. Could you raise your hand again so she can see? Oh, no, uh, yes. Yeah, that's right. Hi. I'm Excuse me, I'm Charles Blitzer, Blitzer Consulting. Let me offer a slightly different view and see what the panel says. Whether, how much effective power the new legislature has aside. Like night follows day, this economy is going to go through a very painful collapse. Macroeconomics, they don't have reserves. They have a uh, price system which gives no real signals. Um, the subsidy system is making the fiscal broke. Um, actually, inflation is 200% this month. Annualized, it's going to be 400 next year. It's going to collapse, and it's going to be a lot of pain for virtually everyone, certainly the mass of the people. I think it's a poison chalice to get the pro-democracy forces anywhere near that collapse. I think they're, my thought is they're better off talking but not blocking things and not, you know, and uh, letting the present regime of 15 years take the blame. As for the U.S., I don't see anything the U.S. can do in a positive nature to prevent that collapse, which in the short run is going to be, well, see, democracy doesn't lead anywhere positive yet. That's a few years <coughs> down the road. Um, is my view totally wrong? Yeah, anyone who wants to jump in. You make some excellent points, and, and I appreciate your perspective. Uh, I think uh, what you said about the, the so-called poison chalice is, is absolutely a concern that the opposition needs to put at the center of their strategy. Because at the end of the day, um, it comes down to um, you, know, you can't drive a car from the back seat. It's going to be very difficult for the opposition to both unify and get out in front on, on some of the, the very necessary um, and very significant uh, changes that, that, that need to be made. 
Um, so if you go down the route to say it'll be difficult for them to do that, um, then you come to the question of, well, who gets, who gets blamed? Um, and as, as you point out, I mean, the opposition does not want to be in a situation where things get worse and it is blamed. And so that uh, basically allows the government to, to basically uh, rescue some version of, of you know, populist Bolivarian socialism light. And so I, I think the opposition, there's, there's going to be a very important game of symbolism that the, that the opposition will ignore at its peril. Um, will the economy go down? I actually, um, I, I hope that you and I are wrong, but um, I'm very fearful of the same thing. I think you're going to have uh, the, the tendency, uh, unless you have some very uh, noble and brilliant people who can overcome it, which is still possible, is that you're going to have legislative gridlock um, and you're going to have economic paralysis. The problems that you alluded to, that I alluded to, are, are going to get worse. Um, and so uh, you probably, we will probably see a, a very significant uh, collapse, um, and, and so uh, you know that um, you know, that that remains a factor. With respect to the, the U.S., I think that's the, the area where I would respectfully but but strongly disagree. I, I think there are a number of, of different things that the United States can do, and I agree entirely with with uh, with my, my colleague Doug Farah as, as well that the U.S. does not want to be out front. Um, we want multilateral institutions. I I think especially um, what a pleasant surprise, Secretary Almagro. Um, and, and I, I think the OAS has a very, very important role to play in this. I think multilateral institutions have, have, have a role. I think um, international rule of law. Um, the bottom line is, as Gustavo alluded to, um, you know, both within Venezuela, um, these le the leadership is, is breaking laws, and internationally through drug trafficking and things, the leaders are, are breaking laws. I think one of the most powerful tools that the United States has is simply through its investigative authorities, its, its legitimate international treaties, um, organizations such as the DEA, um, basically bringing international criminals who happen to be in the government of Venezuela to justice. Um, and I think that's going to create a momentum of its own. But I think beyond that, um, as this crisis unfolds, the very crisis we talked to, uh, what you're going to ha find happening is that the opposition, before being fully in control, is going to have the need to, to try to work with creditors in the United States and others to try to avoid a crisis. I, I think uh, the United States has latitude to basically help avert the very crisis that, that, you, that you alluded to, um, and, and also standing up for transparency, standing up for the rule of law. So I think, um, and, and standing up to strengthen that that happens through institutions such as the OAS. So I think the U.S. has a remarkably positive and important role it can play if we are willing to step up to the plate. But thank you very much for the question. Anyone yeah. else want to jump in? Well, yeah, I, I believe that... Uh, the National Assembly has to represent now uh, the democracy, return to Venezuela, freedom of expression, freedom for the political prisoners, uh, values and principles that have been abandoned for the last uh, 16 years. That, that fight has to be done by the new opposition in Venezuela. Uh, it would be politically expedient to let uh, the government take the whole blame, but, but I think the, the, the burden of the country is so great that uh, everybody has to pitch in at this point in time and forget about political uh, considerations. There's a gentleman here in the front row. Uh, yes, I'm Russell King, retired federal employee. I, I'd like to initially direct this to Mr. Cornell. Um, both Venezuela and Iran are oil exporting countries, I believe, and, um, uh, and Aminajad, I think, initiated a lot of contact with Latin American countries. 
But I'm, I'm wondering about uh, the status of, of petro-political collusion between Venezuela and Iran, because it seems to me in many parts, uh, in, in many different environments, Iran seems to get away with murder, and I'm wondering in, in Venezuela, is there a certain petro-political collusion? I know we have the cartels, and I don't know if there's any kind of bilateral collusion, but what sort of collusion does Venezuela have with Iran uh, petro-politically, and uh, how does this influence, how will, how will that change with the, the new opposition, or will it? Thank you very much. Yes, well, actually, uh, at this moment in time, uh, Iran and Venezuela have completely different uh, agendas. Uh, uh, Iran is sitting pretty in the sense that they now have the possibility to start exporting. In fact, they are already exporting significant volumes of, of oil, uh, which, uh, which is contributing to the weakening of the, of the price of oil in, in the global markets. So, uh, whereas Venezuela is uh, really in critical condition because they cannot increase production, uh, and whatever, whatever, whatever production they have is mostly the heavy oils from the Orinoco area that, as you know, have to be blended with lighter oil, which Venezuela has to import, uh, which is, uh, frankly, uh, not a very economically uh, attractive uh, proposition. So actually, Iran and Venezuela today are on opposite sides of defense uh, in, in, in matters of uh, their own interests. Iran is going to flood the market with new oil, and Venezuela cannot do anything about it. And OPEC is uh, dying in many ways. Uh, OPEC has been replaced uh, by Saudi Arabia on the one side, uh, countries like Iran desperately trying to increase their share, and Venezuela and Ecuador who, are, who have very little say in any longer within, within OPEC. Anyone else want to jump in on this one? No, I, I, th no, I, th I think he's, uh, Gustav is exactly right, and I think that the, the allegiance that was there built on the Bolivarian uh, project is, is eroded considerably. As I, as I said in my presentation, there's no advantage to anyone doing business with Venezuela right now unless they absolutely have to because it's not stable and there's no, there's no, no benefits accrued to you for dealing with them, especially when you have multiple other options as, as Iran now has. So I think uh, Gustav was exactly right. Mm -hmm. Other questions? Uh, there's a gentleman in the second row, and then come to the gentleman in the front row. Hi, Nick Snow with Oil and Gas Journal. Not too surprisingly, my question is about PDVSA, which I believe uh, Mr. Coronel uh, described in ruins. I think you probably are underestimating the situation there from <laughs> other folks that I have heard. Um, there have been reports that uh, key engineers and specialists, specialists which helped the country function as an oil producer and exporter have left Venezuela and been replaced largely by financial managers, uh, euphemistically speaking, who are, have transformed the company so that it is no longer effectively functional. A lot of work needs to be done there, and where is Venezuela going to start? And where is Venezuela? Going to start. Where do they start on the rebuilding? How oh, I see. 
Oh, okay. Well, actually, uh, you know, I believe uh, Petróleos de Venezuela is uh, is impossible to uh, uh, to upgrade. I mean, uh, for in my opinion, Petróleos de Venezuela should be re replaced completely by another model of uh, oil industry management in Venezuela. Of course, that cannot be done uh, instantaneously. Uh, we, they have now 156,000 employees for a production which is about half a million barrels per day, less than it was uh, in 1998. So you can see that the, the, the company has become a totally different type of, of uh, animal than it was when it was, the core business was expo uh, producing oil. Now they import food, distribute food, build housing, uh, low-income housing, they, they, they do many things that have nothing to do with oil. So for all practical purposes, uh, Petróleos de Venezuela is uh, beyond uh, salvation. And uh, of course, it will have to be replaced by a model, and, uh, and that will take at least two years to, to start uh, by attrition, to start uh, getting a smaller and a smaller PDVSA until we can get something completely new working in Venezuela. Politically, that's going to be a very difficult job because, uh, unfortunately, the uh, state ownership and control of the oil industry in Venezuela is not a matter of business. It's a matter of religion, like it is in Mexico and in Bolivia and, uh, and in all countries where the oil industry has been in very bad shape. Uh, even Russia uh, is because this uh, religious uh, sentiment uh, that they should control the oil. Uh, but, uh, but PDVSA has to go, uh, has to go away, unfortunately. Evan? Just to make a few comments, and uh, with some trepidation uh, sitting, uh, sitting, sitting, sitting next to somebody who actually used to help run Pedavesa, <laughs> but um, uh, I, I think absolutely the, the phenomena that you allude to, uh, the, the basically the flow of intellectual capital, I mean, you know, that's been going on, uh, you know, since the, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the resolution of the, the general strike, uh, you know, back in 2003. I mean, um, it, it's amazing how much companies from uh, Ecopetrol, um, you know, just companies across the region have, have benefited from the intellectual capital of petroleum engineers who used to be Venezuelan petroleum engineers. So really the world owes uh, Venezuela a, a, a debt on that one. Um, obviously, uh, Venezuela faces the same problem that the rest of the international oil companies face right now, which is low oil prices. And yet at the same time, um, you know, Aside from that, the, the, the relatively high sulfur heavy oil that you have in the Orinoco region, um, you know you have uh, a lot of potential in that. If, if you look, if you compare Venezuela's heavy oil, for example, to Canada's heavy oil in, in, in the tar sands there, um, you find that uh, um, there are certain cost advantages. Uh, I think, as Gustavo alluded to, um, you know, number one, Pedavesa has to divest itself of the the, the Misiones. Um, number two, as you alluded to, uh, um, you know, once uh, and this is going to be something difficult to do from Congress, but that has to be done. 
um, you do have to get back to technically competent you know, personnel and, um, and, and rational management incentives you know, from, from, from the top. Um, I think number three, you have to eliminate, I believe it was the 2007 law, basically you know, es establishing the requirement of, a, of, a, uh, you know, of, of uh, you know, state control um, in the strategic regions and the, uh, um, and the, uh, um, you know, the 60%, which basically, and, and you really have to go, you really have to follow the, the Mexican Pemex example, although uh, that hasn't turned out too well with round zero and one for, for, for Pemex either. But, um, but you really have to open up the doors for private capital under conditions of predictability and, 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 and security. Um, and to be perfectly frank, it's not just the Exxon Mobiles, and, and it, it's not just the resolution of those uh, cases, and it's not just the resolution of some of the outstanding debt to the petroleum service companies, um, but, uh, but, but it's also across the board. I mean, this is, this is, this is a play where, where, where China already has a strong presence and strong interest. Uh, this is, uh, you know, Russian companies, and, and not just about Igor Sechin and, 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 and Rosneft, but some of the companies who have already left. I think there are a number of people across the board who are willing to help if um, the opportunities are structured in an adequate way. Uh, the gentleman here in the front row. Thank you. Uh, my name is J.P. Carroll. I'm a reporter with the Daily Caller News Foundation. My question is regarding uh, what the U.S. can and or should do in the wake of uh, the legislative elections in Venezuela. And most recently, there were the sanctions in March, both by the administ Obama administration and Congress. However, the effectiveness of them is questionable at best, given that really, if anything, it played right into the imperialist narrative of the Maduro regime. And also, now that Diosdado Cabello has set up this uh, parallel power structure in uh, the legislature, uh, what effect will that have, in your opinion, on the opposition's plans to get their leaders out of jail? And in, do you think that they'll be able to pursue an effective timeline in spite of this uh, power grab by Cabello in terms of, let's say, getting the likes of Leopoldo Lopez out in January, and then with the supermajority trying to have a, a referendum presidential election, given that it will be the halfway mark of Maduro's term in April, and in that case have Lopez be the opposition candidate. What, what is the likelihood of that chain of events? Yeah, Evan, if you'd sure. like to start. Sure, and that's, uh, you asked uh, about uh, eight excellent questions. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, with respect to uh, the opposition getting out of jail, and, and obviously the, you know, one of the, the lead items that the opposition has put on, on, on the agenda, and as uh, Gustavo alluded to, uh, you know, the, the whole question of, of how do you do that, whether it's a, by, by decree, et cetera. Um, my, my gut feeling, seeing how uh, the Maduro regime has, has played thus far, is this is going to, you're going to have a very strong fight on your hands, because uh, what will likely happen is that uh, you not only have to pass the decree, but then you have to have the, um, the government, who are Chavistas, um, basically to agree to go along with the decree, um, and you're going to have a Supreme Court and other tribunals that are going to be willing to interpret non-compliance in the government's favor. Uh, and so, uh, and then you, you have the pivotal issue of uh, people like the, the military. Um, you know, basically, uh, you know, who physically opens the door of the cell to let Leopoldo Lopez out. And I think the international community has a strong role to play in basically taking a duly constituted law and helping to use that law as, as ammunition to make sure that those people improperly imprisoned do get out. Um, I think the issue of the um, the whole um, the whole the whole issue of the parallel assembly uh, that's a separate issue. I, I think that's a dangerous issue, but that's one where uh, the outgoing assembly is on very very weak uh, ground if, if they do that. Um, I think, as, as Gustavo alluded to, there's an, there's a desire to have confusion, um, but uh, you know constitutionally there's absolutely no provision other than um, indirect allusions that this body has any legislative power whatsoever. And, and so I, I think uh, you know the 
incoming assembly has to, to play that up just to make sure that, that no pretense of having any type of power uh, can, can, can be given. Um, and with respect to the U.S. and, and sanctions, um, you know, that was a, unfortunately, I, I think, a, um, probably a snafu by the way of, of the, the way that the language of, of these type of declarations you know, play, plays out. But again, um, in, in my mind, especially through the pursuit um, through international agreements and the justice system of you know, duly, you know, you know, people who are basically you know, criminals, uh, I think uh, we have a strong opportunity to make a difference. And, and let me be perfectly clear, it's not just the particular people that, um, you know, that, we, that, we, that we bring, but it's the calculation that, um, that once someone like the head of the National Guard is, is in jail, once somebody um, you know, like um, you know, the, the, the relatives of Cecilia Flores uh, are now potentially cooperating um, you know, with the U.S. government, presumably, um, that makes a lot of other people lower in the Guard and in the armed forces begin to say, it's now not just about keeping in power so we don't go to jail. It's about knowing that this government is nearing its end, and so do we cut a deal with international law enforcement to save ourselves, or do we continue to back this government to the end, knowing that what we're doing now is, is you know, continues to commit new acts by which um, you know, we will be held accountable. I mean, in many ways, it's the leftist version of what happened um, in the 1970s and 1980s with military governments in, in, in Latin America, although there was an attempt um, to gain amnesty um, over time eventually um, people who committed human rights violation had to pay. And those who break laws and those who run drugs in Venezuela sooner or later are going to have to pay. And so we have a role, I think, in, in holding up rule of law. Um, and, and that changes the calculus in countries and um, in, in decisions that people are making now. Anyone else want to yeah. jump in on? Yeah, well, you know? I, yeah, I believe that the National Assembly has all the punch. It needs to do what they want and need to do. Uh, I, I believe the, constitutionally they have uh, what, what uh, they need to have. Uh, second, uh, I believe Leopoldo Lopez uh, might not be in the most favorable position at this point in time, mostly because the, the results of the election uh, indicate that probably the strategy followed by the non-Lopez uh, members of, of the opposition was the correct one. I disagree with that. I, I believe that uh, elections and street uh, protest go hand in hand. I mean, they like in the like, like the song uh, horse. They go together like a horse and a carriage. If you need one, you use it, and if you need the other, you use it. But Leopoldo Lopez probably will have to be uh, second to Capriles in the succession the presidential succession line, unless he spends more time in prison than the, he, he should. <laughs> because, because if I believe that uh, the National Assembly will get them out very early in 2016. That, that's the first priority of the opposition in, the, in Venezuela at this moment, to take these guys out of, of prison. Finally, U.S., I think they should act uh, through... Uh, Almagro in the OAS, as Evan says. Almagro uh, has a potential as a very effective uh, uh, defender of democracy in, in Venezuela. Um, we have another question. Yes, the young lady in the third row here. Hello, uh, my name is Brianna and I'm with Mitsubishi Corporation. 
Um, I had a question about the financing. Sister Ellis, you had mentioned that they're unlikely to be getting anything in the short term um, from IMF, but that they could be looking for some emergency funds um, for the next year. So I was wondering, um, to any of you, if you have any ideas on where they'd be likely to be looking for funding and where they'd be likely to get it. <laughs> oh, she's asking uh, whether the government is going to be able to find foreign capital and where they'll look for it oh. in order to finance. Oh, I see. Well, I, I am not a financial expert, uh, but I, I think it's going to be a, a very difficult uh, for Venezuela to attract any foreign capital at this point in time. I, I would say that they, they might have to go to the International Monetary Fund, which is the lender of last resort, uh, and, uh, and forget about, con uh, right now, China is the only country lending money to Venezuela, and frankly, they are fed up uh, with uh, Maduro, and uh, they are beginning to, to fear that they will never see their money again. Uh, but uh, it's going to be a very difficult situation for Venezuela. Yes. Just to add, add a few things to that. Uh, actually, uh, the uh, Venezuelan government has already gone at least once, and I believe perhaps twice, uh, to the IMF uh, under the special arrangements, uh, despite years of, of bashing the IMF as a you know, Western capitalist institution. Um, I think China, is, as Gustavo points out, is, is in a very difficult uh, standpoint. I think the Maduro government will tend to try to go to China first. Um, the, the $5 billion that, that supposedly uh, China lent in, in new money to Venezuela last year um, actually was not new money, but was actually the formalization of, of, of uh, uh, monies previously basically loaned to keep oil production on, on, online. Um, the Chinese are very good at making sure that, that they get paid. Um, and I think uh, uh, China will continue to have that concern. And so just as we saw during the 2012-2013 uh, transition, I think there are a lot of people in China right now who have adopted a, are adopting a, a wait-and-see posture um, until you have stability. Um, and, of course, uh, you know, with, uh, with respect to international um, uh, other Western institutions, uh, um, you know, Venezuela is, is pretty much on the outside. Uh, but you really have a chicken-and-egg situation in which um, without uh, – a cooperative effort between the opposition and the Maduro government, it's going to be very difficult for the points gained by the opposition Congress to, to translate into financial competence. Um, Maduro is going to not to want to make that happen, and so basically through conflict, um, you continue to freeze Venezuela out of those markets. Um, and it's only through collaboration that you can save Venezuela and, and bring Venezuela. I think there are a lot of people who would be willing to step up the plate, uh, just as we're seeing with Argentina right now with the incoming Macri government. Um, but um, the government has to take a very different posture in order to, to really make sure that the Venezuelan people can, um, you know, can, can eat and, and be able to buy diapers. Let me ask you to just expand on that a little bit. To what extent is Argentina getting into markets again and dealing mm -hmm. with the IMF again and beginning its return? To what extent does that either set a path for Venezuela to eventually follow and almost set the conditions for what a re-entry would look like for Venezuela if it gets stacked together. To what extent does that also maybe crowd out Venezuela's opportunity until it meets certain conditions? Because there is a Latin American market that, that international institutions and capital are looking at, and it's not Venezuela. I think there's definitely enough money in the international institutions to fund both Argentina and, and Venezuela um, under the right incentives and policies. Um, and, and I think to a certain, but I think to a certain degree also that um, 
you know, again, you have an incoming, um, relatively conservative executive in, in President Maccabee with, with, with a business background who has already demonstrated a desire to appoint a competent uh, economic team um, and, and, and reach out to markets and, and, and go towards market incentives, as Gustavo alluded to, with respect to the ending of, of, of currency controls. You see the exact opposite um, in, in, in Venezuela right now. So um, I, I fear that they're not going, the one is not going to follow the, the path of the other, although in the end, um, you know, that may be the most viable way to to avoid some of the suffering that may be in store for Venezuela. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would agree. I think that uh, the Argentina is, the difference with Argentina is that they, <coughs> they actually want to make the changes. And in Venezuela, there's, there won't be the will until things get changed radically on the executive branch. And so I don't think uh, you can talk about crowding out or competing for space when one mm -hmm. wants to and one doesn't. Mm -hmm. Other questions, comments from the audience? Gentleman here. Uh, hello, my name is Peter Bolton. I'm an activist with the Latin America and Caribbean Action Network. We are a coalition of groups in the D.C. area which give our solidarity uh, to the Bolivarian process and other pink tide uh, governments. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm surprised you even let me in, let alone that you're letting me ask a question. Um, <laughs> I have um, three comments and a question. Um, the first comment is that is it not correct that, uh, is, is it not true that Maduro has quite graciously accepted defeat? And does this not stand in quite stark contrast to the manner in which the opposition used violent putschist tactics to try to use extra parliamentary action to overthrow the democratic result in the last two national elections, the municipals, and before that, the 2013 um, presidential election? Um, second of all, um, I just wanted to point out that the majoritarian system in the uh, National Assembly makes the result look like a much more of a landslide than it was. Um, the uh, PSUV still gained over 40% of the vote, uh, which amounts to 6 million voters, which I think is quite a significant base of support for the continuation of the process, considering that the PSUV have been in power for, uh, I think, 17 years now. Um, I had a third point. Oh, yes. Um, to the gentleman on the, the, the left of the stage, you said that you wanted to bring democracy back to Venezuela, but it seems to me that the Bolivarian process is what brought democratization to Venezuela in the first place and broke the Pact of Punta Fijo, whereby the two previous parties uh, shared conspired to share power uh, between them. Um, and finally... Um, does this result not destroy the argument that people like yourselves have made that the elections have been rigged? Um, according to the Venezuelan opposition, the U.S. media, the, the elections have been rigged the last few times because the result didn't go to their liking. I mean, now uh, we see an MUD uh, victory. I haven't heard any claims of fraud from any of the people up on the stage, so I just thought I'd put that out there and see if you had a response. Good challenges. Who would like to begin? What, you think I said? Gustavo. I, I am definitely going deaf. Uh, <laughs> and I just couldn't get uh, most of what you said. Uh, but uh, one has to do with the fact that the government got 42% of the vote. And uh, that doesn't seem to reflect the landslide. Uh, is that correct? Right. Well, because they got only, I think, 33% of the seats, only 55 seats. Yeah. 
Yes. Yes, you're, you're right, actually. Uh, uh, amazingly, it happened that uh, the gerrymandering that had taken place in the last uh, years, uh, done very skillfully by the government in order to change uh, the uh, voting areas so that they could get more uh, deputies with less votes, that, that uh, process actually uh, acted against them this time around. And frankly, I don't know exactly what happened there. But uh, gerrymandering by the government uh, became a very effective manner of getting more people than they had got votes. Mm -hmm. uh, traditionally, the opposition got uh, a lot of votes and very little deputies. This time around, it, 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 it happened in the opposite manner, and I have no no explanation for, for that. Uh, uh, the, then I, I couldn't get your other uh, uh, questions, unfortunately. Uh, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't hear. We'll give you a chance to come back, because yes. I think Evan's going to jump in, and yes. you can respond oh, there. OK. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, well, first of all, um, you know, I, I, as, as you pointed out, I mean, um, you know, glad to have you here, glad to have this type of discourse. Um, and uh, I've worked uh, in and with Venezuela, both in the private side and, uh, and others off and on for, for, for many years. And, and I remember a time, um, you know, before certain television stations were shut down in Venezuela, um, before certain newspaper owners were, were criminalized, before actions against leaders of, of, of periodic like, like El Nacional uh, took place, uh, before uh, um, political leaders were, were, were killed by thugs in the street, that it was possible for someone with an opposition view um, to be able to publicly confront um, or, or have public discourse in Venezuela like it is, is possible and we celebrate here in, here in the United States. And, and so when I talk about democracy, I, I think uh, you know, that's the, the type of return to a, a, you know, a, a free society that we're, that we're hoping for. Um, obviously, uh, um, you, um, and, you know, you, you, uh, you, you're, you're basing some opinions on, on a very different reality than I, I think uh, some of us uh, are. Um, and uh, you know, it's gonna, it, it, obviously, we're not going to be able to come to uh, you know, come to a meeting of the minds uh, based on, on fundamentally different uh, streams of reality that, uh, that that we have. But but just a few comments. Um, uh, many of us actually asked the same thing. Well, you know, well, we expected the results to be um, you know, given uh, what was demonstrated during the previous elections with respect to the uh, um, the, the manipulation by the the CNE, uh, the uh, the manipulation, you know, the, the evidence. I think uh, my my colleague Andreas Oppenheimer uh, said uh, in Venezuela, where, where many dead people vote, um, you know, it was strong strong evidence of of these uh, type of processes. Uh, um, you know, demobilization in opposition strongholds such as the um, you know, such such as the um, the frontier districts uh, during the time of the Declaration of National Emergency, um, we really expected things to not turn out as, as well as they did. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the things, and I have not yet seen it substantiated, but I, it, I've, I've seen multiple reports um, of this, is that uh, one of the key actors, as, as it turned out, was actually the head of the Army, where looking at institutional interests, not others, um, basically uh, um, in the evidence that there were already Chavistas uh, doing things at polling places, um, said um, you know, the Army will not, just as in 2007, when the Chavistas lost, they said, we are not going to go out into the streets um, to, um, to defend obvious electoral fraud. Um, because that would not be in the institutional interest of, of, of the army, and so that is my understanding, um, but certainly not uh, proven of uh, part of, of, of what happened. 
Um, again, when you talk to extra-parliamentary action, again, um, I think uh, interpreting what happened in 2014 with uh, you know, government repression of peaceful protests and, and you know, things like that, uh, we're just going off of a very different uh, understandings of, of the reality of, of what occurred there and, and why the people who, who died were killed. Um, with respect to uh, your point about gerrymandering, it, it is ironic that the very uh, system of gerrymandering that was generated by PSUV-controlled um, you know, uh, districts uh, ironically, when that tide so massively turned against the government, actually worked to magnify the opposition's uh, victory, uh, the, the opposite of, of what the PSUV had, 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 hoped, to, had, had, had hoped to do. Um, but, um, but, but I think at the end of the day, um, it is important. Uh, there are many ideas of democracy. I think one of the things, as you alluded to, that uh, there was a frustration for many years in a country as rich is Venezuela under the period of the PS, uh, under the periods of of, of the COPE and, and, and Acción Democrática that uh, why was it that there was such uh, corruption? Why was it there was such inequality of income? And I would argue that um, the the bad is is on the previous generation of political leadership alternating in power, um, the negligence of the suffering of the people in the rancheros, the marginalized that allowed, uh, frankly, a, a a someone who understood how to talk the talk but fundamentally exploit the ignorance um, and the needs of the Venezuelan people that on that false promise, Venezuela has suffered the destruction that it has over the past 17 years. Um, and so, uh, but what you allude to is absolutely right because I think movements such as yours reflect the leg legitimate need of equality and dignity and development for the Venezuelan people. And so I hope with rational policies that get us there, that we will at least eventually, after this period, move toward that. So thank you for the question. Uh, I would just add one thing or echo something that, that uh, Evan said, and that is that I think it's absolutely true that no, no country needed a revolution more desperately than Venezuela yeah. going into this. I think the great tragedy of the Bolivarian Revolution has completely betrayed those ideals and became a functioning yeah. criminal enterprise. And I think that that, to me, left, right, or center, you've, have, you, you've had a socialist government in Chile that did very well. You've had a socialist government in Uruguay that's done amazingly well. Then you have the Bolivarian authoritarian governments that come in and destroy the democratic processes that they claim to create in countries that desperately needed those democratic processes. And to me, that is the ultimate betrayal of, of the Bolivarian revolution. And I think to me, that's the saddest uh, remnant of what's left of what, was, what started out as something that could have been considerably different. Gustavo, did you want to jump in again? No, I, I already asked uh, him for his email, and I, I read better than I hear. <laughs> Excellent. Um, is there another question? There's a gentleman here in the one, two, three, fourth row. Thank you. Uh, Chris Gruy, U.S. Treasury Department. Uh, just to build on the point that was just raised, uh, if you look at the election results, and particularly if you look at the poll numbers, Chavez still polls at about 50%, a little over popularity. So you have a very polarized country in Venezuela between the people who support Chavez and then the people who support the opposition. As you all have adequately described, you have a country where the institutions of government are not functioning. So to pose sort of a, a different question then what should the National Assembly do? What would you all recommend in terms of the priorities in rebuilding the institutions 
in Venezuela to both avoid the conditions that previous, uh, were prior to Chavez and the uh, deterioration of the institutions that have taken place under Chavez. Excellent. Well, actually, uh, the problem in Venezuela is that uh, everything is a priority. <laughs> uh, uh, it's like uh, the mosquito flying over the elephant, uh, saying, you know, I know what I have to do, but I, I don't know where to start. <laughs> and that's, that's what is going on in Venezuela right now. If Venezuela is financially in ruins. Uh, is uh, uh, the morale of the population, as you say, highly po polarized. There is a lot of resentment of one group against the other and vice versa. Uh, so uh, there has to be a, 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 a great effort working in parallel. We cannot afford to freeze one or two or three problems in order to solve one problem. You know, it's going to be uh, a, a, a multiple task. Uh, I would say that the first thing is uh, to let the Venezuelans and the world know that uh, Venezuela has to be a democracy and that the uh, dissidents has to be respected and that no political prisoners can exist in a civilized country like we have had in the last 16 years. This will never should happen again in Venezuela. And the, the only way for, for this not to happen again is to apply justice. Uh, we cannot go into a transition through which we can forget and forgive what has been done to Venezuela and to Venezuelans. Uh, if we let uh, Maduro, Cabello, and, and what I call his gang go away and, and enjoy their, uh, their money uh, abroad, uh, we will have them back uh, in, in no time flat. Uh, it, uh, it has happened before in other countries. The so-called transition from authoritarian regimes to democracies in other countries has left a lot of trash below the rock. Uh, we have to clean the, the, the trash. We cannot leave uh, the, 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 the trash uh, below the rock because uh, we don't solve anything by, by doing this. You know, and, and this is one of the main risks in Venezuela nowadays, that there is a temptation to forget and forgive in order to, uh, to accomplish a rapid transition. Thank you for the excellent question. And uh, um, I'll swear to the rest of the group, uh, he, he was not a plant, uh, although uh, we, we both find ourselves in uh, the same employer. Um, but uh, uh, for, first of all, um, you know, the thing that uh, is not entirely clear in Venezuela is, uh, you, know, um, you know, rest his soul, uh, Hugo Chavez is dead. Um, and so in many ways, um, Nicolas Maduro um, was not Chavez. And, and so what you saw is, is a difficulty. And, and indeed, in the legislative elections, the candidates who were running were not even Nicolas Maduro. They were uh, individual candidates who failed really to inspire, and indeed in many ways, much of the residual lack of faith that the previous election in which Maduro had come to power was really a free and fair election. There was that residual 
bit of, of, of uh, um, lack of confidence in, in the legitimacy of, of, the, of this government. But I think there are a number of things, and, and clearly the polls show that it wasn't about liking the opposition. Um, the opposition had a lot of work to do. It was about fundamental dissatisfaction with the status quo and a desire to change it at, at any cost. Um, having said that, I would, I would say that there's probably at least about five or six things that, that need to be done. Um, I, I think in the outsets, uh, the U.S. and Venezuela has to be very concerned about the unstable security situation. Um, I think you have basically armed groups in the countryside. I, I think uh, working, um, you know, basically U.S., European, working with the OAS, um, you know, in a transition government, have to make sure that those groups are either incorporated properly supervised or, or disarmed to basically avoid the devolution into either a bloodbath or the type of thing that you saw in the Columbia with the demobilization that led to the, uh, the, the criminal bans. Um, beyond that, I, I think uh, Venezuela badly needs short-term financing, and so I think there is a need for a collaborative government that would work with institutions such as the IMF um, and, and, and others to basically get it through, as, as Gustavo points to, the, the coming year. Um, I think um, since 96% of the foreign currency interview, um, income comes from PDVSA, um, you need some short-term emergency um, initiatives in PDVSA. I think you need a managerial restructuring. I, I think you need to get out of the misillness, and, and I think you need to basically have move very quickly towards some preliminary auctions so that you can basically bring in new capital that does not require the absent 60% PDVSA funding. Um, I think a transition government needs to absolutely re-engage with the U.S. and the Department of State through the DEA and, and others. Um, I think just as we've seen with some of our Central American neighbors um, or very, very important institutions such as the uh, CICIG in, in Guatemala, I think with the international community, you can bring the rule of law um, and bring criminals to justice. I think one of the things that the Venezuelan government can do is, is to help international institutions basically bring those who have committed international criminal acts uh, to justice as a way of, of cleaning up the state. And then beyond that, there are things about the purification um, of, it, of institutions, uh, certainly police institutions, others, um, to try to at least get the level of criminality down to, to something that's manageable in, in, in the short term. And I think beyond that, um, you have... Uh, um, and and let, me, let me also be, be clear, because um, it's not just the U.S. and, and, and the EU. Um, China has played a very important role um, and continues to have very important stakes in economic projects, in infrastructure projects, in the petroleum sector, et cetera. Um, I think under the right conditions, China can become not only a key player, but that type of partnership that China and Venezuela can have, getting Venezuela back on its feet in conjunction with the U.S. under a regime of transparency, um, can also help to reassure the United States that it's possible to have a constructive relationship with China for the development of the region. I think there are similar things to be said for, for Russian companies and, and others. So I think this is an area where there are opportunities really for the U.S. and multiple extra-hemispheric actors to work together um, in the interest of the Venezuelan people to, to avert, avert this disaster. Doug, what are your thoughts about priorities? Well, I think uh, really the institution building is, is, prime, is fundamental. I think that you know, the institutions didn't work before the Chavez government, and they certainly don't work now. And if they don't work in the post in the post process, they're going to be bad. You're never, you're not going to actually advance the ball. I think fundamentally, you have to look at the judicial reform and then restructuring. I think that that is something that uh, everyone who doesn't have a vested interest in saving their own skin should be able to get on board on. I think there are significant police reform. I think the police were were bad before, and I think they got worse. And I think if you don't re fundamentally start again in ways that 
uh, you can over time uh, find you, there are models over time that have worked over time to recon reconfigure police forces to more adequately deal with the internal problems than than going after political opposition, etc. Um, and I think you have to have a fundamental restructuring of the uh, the military. I think that the, the military has become deinstitutionalized over time. It doesn't know what its role is. It's been handed a lot of money. You have to deal with things like pay the best. But I think that focusing on those building blocks for the future, if you don't focus on those building blocks for the future, you're not going to have much of a future, regardless of whether Maduro stays or the opposition comes and goes. Is, you're not going to make much progress. And I think that's been demonstrated over time across Latin America and many other areas. Gustavo. Yeah, I was going to say that, uh, in my opinion, the Bolivarian Revolution is dead, but Chavismo is not necessarily dead. Uh, there is a distinction there. What, what exists in Venezuela is a sentiment uh, towards Chavez because of the uh, uh, great amounts of money that Chavez uh, distributed among the poor with great prodigality and probably with the best of intentions originally. But uh, the fact remains that today there are more poor in Venezuela than in 1998 when Chavez came into power. And we have gone through $2.3 trillion in doing that. Uh, where is that money? Where did it go? Uh, Chavez gave uh, fish every day to millions, but uh, he never taught anyone to fish. So we are now short of money with the same amount of poor, but with a sentiment of gratitude looking back in time towards the man who gave them, at least for a while, the illusion that they were escaping poverty. But uh, no one in Venezuela escaped poverty during these uh, 16 years. And that's a tragedy. $2.3 trillion after, we are in the same position as we were, or even worse position, as we were in, in 1998. So I believe cha Chavismo will exist for a while. I don't know whether it will last uh, 10, 15, 20, 100 years of gratitude. But uh, it will not be the Bolivarian Revolution any longer. Powerful comment, and I think a fitting comment on which to end. Ladies and gentlemen, we've just about come to time. I want you to join me in thanking this great panel and the great audience that we had for questions.